last episode of Human Resources, we looked at the women in Jamaica who owned slaves, both British colonists and the formerly enslaved women who codified their freedom through subjugating others. But there were also women who didn't stay, ones who never set foot in Britain's slave colonies, the absentee owners. I'm Moya Lothian McLean, a journalist on the journey to discover the truth about Britain's slaving history. This is Human Resources. There were lots of different kinds of slave owners in the late 18th and early 19th centuries. Many of them, the people that you stereotypically think of, those who owned large-scale plantations, some of whom were resident in the Caribbean, some of whom weren't. Actually, there were lots of what were known as absentees, which meant that although they enslaved people in the Caribbean, they actually lived in Britain. And this became sort of the ideal, the dream for many of those who were in the Caribbean because it was by returning to Britain and spending their wealth rooted in enslavement by sort of establishing themselves in metropolitan society that that was how they sort of often really saw themselves as having made it. But actually not all absentees were this way. Others inherited enslaved property, having never even been to the Caribbean. And actually, it's also important to think that not all enslaved people lived and worked on plantations. Many worked and lived in urban areas or in different kinds of industries. So there was lots of what we might consider small-scale slave ownership as well as large-scale industrial plantation. I'm speaking to Dr Hannah Young a historian who specialises in gender and absentee slave ownership. I wanted to know more about the women in Britain who wanted a piece of the pie offered by the slave trade, but also to remain at a physical remove from the colonies where the act of enslavement was happening. From my conversation with Christine Walker in the last episode, Girl Bosses, I know that women slave owners in Jamaica didn't tend to oversee large plantations. I asked Hannah if this was true of absentee owners as well particularly common for women is that that actually they didn't necessarily own a plantation on which they also then possessed enslaved people. They might just, horrible language, but have a group of enslaved people that they might, for example, then hire out. Their income was still absolutely derived from slavery, but they weren't plantation owners. Most enslaved people lived on plantations. But most slave owners were small scale, if that makes sense. So because these plantations were so vast, yeah, hundreds of enslaved people often lived and worked on them. But actually, if we're talking about numbers of slave owners, the majority of those weren't big plantation owners. They owned relatively small numbers of enslaved people. When does absenteeism start becoming an aspiration for some of these slave owners? 
basically absenteeism becomes more and more of a goal for many sort of slave owners and plantation owners across the 19th century many of whom wanted to then return to britain to really establish their lives while still very much being dependent on an income from slavery it's also important to remember that there are lots of different types of absentees and again this is particularly the case as we move into the late 18th and 19th centuries some were merchants who became slave owners after people defaulted on mortgages that were secured on the plantations and many many men and women in britain inherited enslaved property just as you would inherit any other form of property they hadn't necessarily been to the caribbean and in lots of cases many never did so let's say someone inherited an enslaved person from their family do we know anything about how people viewed their position as absentee slave owners? Interestingly, and I think this is most obvious when this £20 million of compensation is awarded, no one refused compensation. At the time, women, for example, were sometimes referred to even by abolitionists as, quote, unconscious stipendrians, i.e. they just got this income, they didn't really know where it was coming from or what it was about. I mean, I think most of the time that's complete rubbish. I think they, to an extent, at least some might not have thought about where their money was coming from in the way that lots of us don't always perhaps think about how our pensions are invested or that sort of thing. So I'm sure to an extent there were women who might not have thought that much about slavery itself, although they were happy to profit from and take the money from it. But then there are also other examples of absentees who were really actively involved in perpetuating the system of slavery, who from their sort of nice townhouses in Britain would write letters across the Atlantic directing very clearly how these estates should be managed and how the enslaved should be treated. There is often, I think, a sense of distanciation there, almost a literal distancing, and that enables them to sort of distance themselves from what they're doing. There is often, in the language of absentees, you get this completely fictitious language of ensure the enslaved are taken care of, for example. I think it would be overly generous to say that then they didn't know what they were doing there because they're often also accompanied by a caveat that as long as you can still preserve your authority, for example. Many absentees were, despite being thousands of miles across the Atlantic, still very actively involved in perpetuating the system of enslavement. Do we know how many British women were involved in slave ownership during this period? When did women's ownership of enslaved people start creeping up and becoming a category in its own right? We only have fixed statistics for the moment at the end of slavery. And what we know is that when compensation was awarded in the 1830s, 41% of those who claimed compensation were women. Now, lots of those were women who lived in the Caribbean, who were relatively small-scale slave owners, who, for example, might have owned hostels or had owned enslaved women that they would hire out or use as washerwomen or that sort of thing. And actually, you know, women were always present in the Caribbean and women were always involved in the system of slavery from its very inception, particularly these sort of relatively small-scale slave owners. 
But the other thing that's interesting about the statistics that come out of the compensation records is that about 24% of the absentees were women. So that's those who lived in Britain. I mean, the rates of absenteeism increased across the 18th century, but also possibly as absenteeism became more common and as more people inherited enslaved property. I mean, 24% is an awful lot of women, a sort of, in lots of respects, a surprising number of women. So it shows that women really central to the sort of maintenance and entrenchment of the system of slavery and also how that money then filters into Britain itself. And correct me if I'm wrong, absentee women slave owners mostly came to the trade via inheritance. I think most women in Britain did inherit, certainly by the late 18th and early 19th centuries. In general, people weren't, by that time, going out and choosing to make their money by, say, purchasing enslaved people. But inheriting enslaved property was to many just seen as another kind of property ownership. To us, it's completely abhorrent. And like it sort of seems important to make clear, absolutely clear that it isn't. This is human property. But to people at the time, they didn't necessarily make any distinction between enslaved property and, you know, you might inherit a house or a sort of small piece of land in Britain. They didn't necessarily conceive any distinction. What backgrounds are most of these absentee women slave owners coming from? How do they use the boost in material power that slave ownership gives them? Not quite from across the whole social scale, but the majority from the lower middle classes to really the highest levels of the elite inherited and owned enslaved property. We see the very richest aristocrats or the daughters of merchants owning plantations and hundreds of enslaved people. And particularly if they were the sole daughters of their parents, they were often to the relatively impoverished aristocrat seen as a great choice to marry because they were cash rich. So certainly quite significant numbers of women who were slave owners, who were sort of relatively well-to-do, but not the highest levels of the elite, then absolutely used their wealth from slavery to marry into aristocracy and really the highest levels. That's not uncommon in the 18th century. But we also see women from much lower down the social scale, obviously not the very poorest, but relatively lower middle class women might inherit a relatively small number of enslaved people, which they then derive their income from. That was fairly well known. And in fact, when debates about slavery occur, as there is really a fight between the abolitionists and between the pro-slavery defenders, these women become part of this rhetorical fight. There is a, quite an awareness that there's lots of women in Britain are earning their money this way. Where's this money going? When slavery was abolished, there were undoubtedly women who were scared of losing their income on which they depended. Others used it to invest in philanthropy, for example, build churches, build schools, or help particularly those who might have married relatively elite well, that money might have then gone into the sort of rebuilding of country houses. It just seeps in lots of different ways into most aspects of British society. So it's not always easy to say this money went into this thing, but it in lots of just different ways just becomes part 
of Britain. And I think that's one of the reasons it's so hard to confront because it is just it's everywhere almost. What were the expectations of women at this time, particularly in the middle and upper classes, who participated primarily in slave ownership? How did it sit with their roles in enacting this very brutal system? There's a really interesting example of a woman called Dorothy Little who lived in Bristol and she owned about a dozen enslaved people in Jamaica. And in the 1830s, she writes quite a lot of letters to the Slave Compensation Commission, which is the body that administers the compensation, demanding to get her compensation. But what's really interesting about these letters is that she uses this really gendered language. She sort of like deliberately and repeatedly presents herself as vulnerable and in need of protection. In fact, I've got a quote. She says, It is quite inconsistent with the character of the noble Englishman to reduce aged widows to beggary by forcibly taking their property from them. She's really, I think, quite consciously using these stereotypical ideas about vulnerable women being reliant on the male provider to get what she wants. And like what she wants is compensation for property and people. And even in writing these letters, she's showing that she's absolutely aware of what she's doing. I think what's also clear about these letters is the extent to which she's constructing her own womanhood, not only in opposition to the sort of noble Englishman, but actually also to the unnamed enslaved women that she owns. And as I say, that she doesn't name them, but it's important that we do. I think these women were Sally, Lucy, Betty and Nancy. And the way that she talks about them is totally horrific. She talks about how they're more valuable to her because they have, and this is a quotation, doubled their number, i.e. because they've had children. It's absolutely horrid the way that she is quantifying their fertility whilst also using this very gendered language about the vulnerability of women. It's so clear that she has a very, very racialized conception of womanhood. These women aren't deemed in need of protection. And that, I think, really shows some of their uncomfortableness of thinking about female slave owners. It's interesting what Hannah says here. This white woman slave owner writes a letter and she understands the arguments in order to present women as vulnerable, but at no point does she actually consider the enslaved woman that she owns would be the same as her, a white woman. There's clear subcategories created in her head. What other uncomfortableness is thrown up when we talk about female slave owners? What is really, really clear to me is that we need to think more critically the way we think about women's history. And actually, that girl boss narrative now can often result in looking back to, oh, women property owners, women were doing this and this and this. We don't look at that critically enough. It's about sort of restoring women's rightful place in history without necessarily paying due attention to what these women are actually doing. And that's so obvious in the case of slave owners because what they were doing was abhorrent. But actually, we might think about broader histories of class and colonialism that also complicate these women's histories. It's not about disparaging them necessarily, but we do need to sort of maybe think a bit more critically with how we as contemporary historians look back at the 18th and 19th century women's histories. And certainly it's not a simplistic either like poor exploited woman or girl boss property 
Women were also really active within the abolition movement. Do we have any evidence or, you know, sources from that time that show us what women who owned enslaved people thought about abolition and how they reacted to it or how they came up against women within the abolition movement? We often associate the campaigns for abolition as being a moment when women become particularly politically engaged in Britain. Certainly, female slave owners defended slavery. They didn't necessarily become themselves part of the campaigns for abolition in a way that the abolitionist women did. I think perhaps because if abolitionist women were able to carve a space for themselves politically because women were seen as nurturing. So this was sort of an acceptable form of political activity. Perhaps for some of those reasons, it was harder for women who owned enslaved property to sort of become defenders of slavery. There is at least one text written by a pro-slavery woman in the Caribbean called Mrs. Carmichael, but that's one of the only ones. But certainly female slave owners defended slavery and indeed I think particularly as lots of absentees did when they understood that abolition was inevitable, wanted to fight for compensation. Were there obstacles preventing mass mobilisation for compensation on behalf of women slave owners or stopping public mobilisation in the same way people campaigned for abolition? Certainly, I think that it would probably have been very difficult for female slave owners to organise politically given that the reason that abolitionists were able to was because they rooted these arguments in motherhood and protection and particular ideas about sort of acceptable female political engagement. Whether absentees themselves had any distaste with slavery, possibly. Again, it didn't often prevent them from engaging in it or, you know, I don't think anyone refused compensation. So even those slightly publicly, by the 1820s and particularly the late 1820s and 1830s, when it became clear that sort of abolition was inevitable, you get relatively few absentees defending the principle of slavery itself. What you get is oh, not yet, you know, the enslaved need preparing for freedom. So it's a sort of like trying to put it off and control it rather than necessarily by that stage defending the principle of slavery itself. Yeah, by then you perhaps will get some, and what people thought about it themselves, yeah, I'd, I'd love to know more about. Very, very occasionally you get hints at a sort of discomfort with what's going on. Actually, from a much earlier period, there's a letter from an absentee called Anna Eliza Ellotson, who was very actively involved in managing her Jamaican estate. And within one of these letters, she says, talking about the enslaved, we who reap the fruits of that labour ought to soften it from them. And that's the only hint in her whole correspondence of a sort of underlying discomfort with the system of slavery. And then even here, you get as much as possible after that. And that is the only thing, and it doesn't prevent her making vast, vast amounts of money from enslaving people and exploiting them in the Caribbean. So actually, I also don't know if any sense of If there was any discomfort, it didn't change what people actually did. What understanding about gender and slavery ownership would you want people who are newly coming to this topic to leave with? 
I think it's really important that people know that women were sort of actively involved in perpetuating and entrenching and profiting from slavery. And I also think it's really important that we acknowledge the way that women used ideas about gender to do that. And I think that that has lots of resonances in the present day. It's important to remember that lots of people had lots of very different ideas about womanhood and they often exploited that and used that to get what they wanted. And that and the way that that was gendered is, I think, something that's really important both to know historically and yet to also think about in the present. It's important as contemporary historians and particularly as women historians of women. So sometimes we want to look back to that period and celebrate the women who we might see as fighting the patriarchy by owning property, for example. But we need to be really, really careful to look at that history critically and really think about what they were up to. And that's particularly obvious when you're looking back at slave owners because, I mean, no one's looking at this history in a celebratory way, or at least I really hope they're not. But actually it's important for lots of different types of women. Class, colonialism and race shaped what these women were doing just as much as their gender did. And it's important to be aware of that. Women, we can't just reduce women to either sort of vulnerable, exploited women or the girl boss who's owning property. I don't think many historians are doing that, but that would be a very reductive and simplistic way of looking at this history. It's important to think as critically about the recovery of women's histories as it is any other kind of history. Human Resources was written by me, Moya Lodi McLean. Our editor and producer is Renee Richardson. Our researchers are Dr. Alison Bennett and Arisa Lumber. Production assistant is Rory Boyle. Social assets by Forward Slash. This is a Broccoli production. <laughs>